guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and you're listening to Specify, the Building Materials Innovation Podcast. The goal of this podcast is to help the entrepreneurs and the innovators who are making a positive difference in the building materials, coatings, and construction industry. Each episode, we'll tap leaders and experts from inside and outside the industry to provide the mental tools, skills, and insights to make an impact. Today's guest is Reed Ribble, the CEO of the National Roofing Contractors Association. He was a president of his own roofing company for over 30 years, and he served six years in the U.S. House of Representatives. Reed, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, it's good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Reed, so uh, tell me more about your background. Well, I started out in the in the roofing business. My father had a a small roofing company located in Menasha, Wisconsin. And when he wanted to retire, I was uh, just finishing up high school and decided that it uh, might be kind of fun. This was a small company with just three or four employees at the time. And I enjoyed working with my hands. I enjoyed construction. And so I decided to go to work with my father for a few years. And then when I was 22, I took the company over and began to grow it from there. And wow. 30 years later... 30 years later, I had quite a career. Wow. Wow. So, so three to four employees <laughs> and uh, you took it over at 22. What was it like kind of growing it? I mean, did, did you have sort of a business background or how did that go? I didn't have a business background, but you know, at the end of the day, it's not rocket science. You have, yeah. you have, your, you have your direct costs, which are your labor and materials, and you have your, your variable costs, which would be your overhead and heat and lights and what have you. And so you know exactly what these roofing jobs would cost you. And then you have to decide what, what do you want to live on, right? Do you want to basically work for wages or do you want to build a business that has a long lasting existence with retained earnings and some, some value that you might be able to sell as you get a bit older? You know what I did as a small business guy and as a small roofing company, I decided to join the National Roofing Contractors Association when mm. I was 22 years old. And what I did was I ended up getting around people who were like the people I wanted to be. They were like the person I wanted to become and they had the businesses I wanted my business to be like. And I found a great affinity with these folks and they began to teach me about the roofing business, began to teach me how to be better at it. By the 1990s, at some point there, we had around 100 roofers working and it was uh, quite an evolution. Wow, that's uh, fantastic. Was it it fairly straightforward for you or did you you, uh, have to tackle a lot of adversity? There were some things, but my father was a good guidance. He, he was a very religious person. He was a, a chaplain for the prison system in Wisconsin. He had eight children, and so he did roofing to, to help supplement his income, he would say. And he gave me a solid base. But one, I remember one of the tips he gave me. He said, you know, Reed, if you want to be successful in the roofing business, you have to look for jobs that have the letter D. And he said, D stands for dollars. And <laughs> the more D, the more D's you put in a job, the more dollars you'll make. And so you want jobs that are dirty. You want jobs that are dangerous. You want jobs that are difficult. And the more D's that are in a job, the more likely you are to make dollars at them mm-hmm. because nobody else wants to do those jobs. <laughs> and so focus on things nobody wants to do. And then the price becomes subservient to all those other things. And that was something that stuck with me my entire life. 
Wow, that's very compelling. <laughs> so you did this for th- <laughs> you, you did this for thirty years. What, what compelled you to to go into politics? Uh, you know, I think there were a lot of things. I think sheer frustration with the, the amount of taxes as I became more profitable as my company grew. I began to pay close attention to what both state and local and federal government were taking out of my my daily work. And I felt in many respects, I was working more to support them than myself because Mm. my tax burden had exceeded 50% of my total work. And that just became cumbersome to me. And when you add to the fact that you had all these other regulations on top of it and how you must live your life and run your business, I was frustrated by that. And so I began to think, why couldn't I run for Congress? Why why couldn't somebody like me become a member of Congress? That's kind of what our founders had envisioned, is people would set aside their private life for a while, go serve their country, mm-hmm. and then at some point return back to that, that world and live under the rules and laws that you help promulgate. And if more members of Congress would do that, I think we'd have a better government. They'd be more cautious about the rules that they write. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to stay in Washington forever, what difference does it make, really? So that's why I was a big believer in term limits. And I lived that out in my uh, political career and still believe that today. Very cool. What did that uh, transition look like? I mean, obviously, you you didn't have any experience going into it. So what was that transition? Did you get other people to help you? It's a little embarrassing looking at it from the viewpoint I have today on how little I knew and how little prepared I was to go to Washington. I knew what I thought government should do, but I didn't know any of the glossary. I didn't know the rules of the House of Representatives. I didn't know the culture. And so for the first few months, it was a bit overwhelming. I was very fortunate that because of my business background, I was better at hiring people than a lot of my colleagues. And so I didn't have a lot of turnover. And as a result of the caliber of people that I hired from my chief of staff, my legislative director, my deputy chief, all the way down, I had really talented people working for me. And I ended up operating with one of the smallest staffs on Capitol Hill, but having some of the best metrics of any of them. And these men and women who who knew the landscape and were highly skilled at what they were doing there were able to mentor me and help me along the way to, to become as successful as I possibly could during the time that I was there. Very nice. So uh, what brought you back into the uh, National uh, Roofing Contractors Association? Well, you know, that, that, that's, that was an interesting story in and of itself. And I would confess to you that because of what the association meant to me in my business life when I had my roofing company, and, and I think your listeners should be aware that for 20 years, I served on the board of directors for NRCA. Yeah. In 2005, I became their president or what is today called the chairman of the board and served at the highest level of volunteer for the association. And I had a great admiration for the association and its leadership. And so when I, when I tweeted out that I was not running for Congress again, that, it was, that I was going to end my, my season of service in Washington, NRCA reached out to me and, and said, are you aware that our longtime CEO is going to retire? And this was a man who I had great respect for and considered a dear friend of mine, Bill Good. And it was an intriguing offer, something that I thought I would really enjoy doing. And so over the next few months, I think that would have been like February 2016 through maybe May of 2016, I went through a a grueling process of meeting with several different committees and search consultants that they'd put in place and hired 
And ultimately, they extended an offer to me to come and be their CEO. And I can tell you, it's been a real fun journey that I've been on this last three years. Wow, that's awesome. So, so Twitter was, was the, uh, uh, what uh, helped you uh, transition uh, over. I, I did not know that. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah they, I tweeted out on a Sunday night, like at 10 o'clock, because they didn't want a big news story about it that I wasn't going to run. And I think within a day, I had seven or eight different uh, organizations reach out to me to see if I might be interested in post-congressional work. And interestingly enough, three of them were trade associations, and one of those three was MFCA. Wow. So I was happy to do that. That was It was fun because I was going back and, and working with, with people that I knew Yeah. that had NRCA has a, a history of retaining staff. I mean, the senior leaders at NRCA from our technical services department all the way across the board have, you know, average tenure of about 20 years. And wow. so these are highly skilled, long tenured employees that really know the landscape and were able to, to mentor me a bit when I came on board. They uh, helped me not to make uh, critical mistakes. And I certainly made my share of mistakes when I got on board at NRCA, but I had really talented vice presidents who were able to kind of uh, give me some direction and guidance. And that was really helpful. Wow. What do you think the, the secret of having that kind of retention in that organization? Well, I think a lot of it had to do with Bill Good, the former CEO. He had built a, first of all, he had built a solid base of, of young people when he came on board 25 or 30 years prior to that. And a lot of these folks grew in NRCA with him. And as the association grew, these folks were able to grow in their businesses and they, they found places where they could become experts in things that they enjoyed. Bill was a good, fair, equitable manager who treated people correctly. And I'm hoping I'm doing the same thing. I haven't had much turnover since I came. And I think people were surprised at that. But at the same hand, for me, it's all about the men and women who work for an organization. That's who the organization actually is. It's the people that are doing the the day-to-day work that makes NRCA function. It's not so much a function of me. I just need to empower these people to do their job equip them with uh, what they need to do it, and then cut them loose. I don't need to be second-guessing everything they're doing. And quite frankly, very little in operations has changed since I came. Very good. You know, what are the biggest challenges in the industry that you're currently tackling? I think there's a couple, but I would say that almost all of them center around the roofing industry's workforce at every level. And in fairness, when I came to NRCA, I came from being a member of Congress to a National Trade Association. And when you're in Congress, you have a lot of data that you have access to. There's Mm. 1,500 researchers at the Library of Congress. And if I wanted to know anything, I could send a question over there. They'd put a bunch of researchers on it. By the end of the day, I'd have it. When I came to NRCA, I noticed that there was a void of of data. And so I began to, to take a look at what does this workforce look like and what will the workforce of the future look like? Our members were complaining to me that they couldn't recruit workers, they couldn't find workers, they couldn't retain workers. And so the first thing I needed to do was find out who these people were, how was the industry organized, how has it changed from the days that I ran my roofing company, and then what types of programs do we need to build to answer these questions? And so everything centered around how do we hire people, how do we train and equip those people, and how do we make them professionals? And that was the quintessential challenge of the day, and that is still the quintessential challenge today. Hmm. 
There are anywhere from forty to 50,000 jobs open right now that roofing contractors have that they could hire people if there were people available. And so we needed to answer that. And that led us on a whole journey of, of different understanding and taking a look at, at young workers and what are the things that inspire them? How do we train and equip them? And then how do we treat them in a way that they want to stay in the industry? And that's what we've been working on for the last couple of years. Very nice. What are the uh, best examples of innovation in the industry? Yeah, I think there's a lot of innovation. I think if you look at in the technological world, I think probably one of the things that's really noticeable is the use of drones and the role that it plays in worker safety, particularly on the estimating side of things, where you've got their homes or commercial buildings with large, steep, sloped roofs that you, you can't really get on and get close to to inspect. We're now able to take high-definition cameras, take a drone up there, and get a close look at the conditions on that roof without actually endangering anybody's life by putting them on that roof. And I think that using technology like that are the types of things that can change the landscape for an entire industry. And there, there are many of those types of things, the use of robotics that are, that are helping to, to make sure roofs stay watertight on low-slope roofing. Those are, those are technological advances that are improving each and every year that allow the industry to be less labor-intensive, cleaner, and more technological. And those are the types of things that draw young people to the trade. And you can take a look at how solar is being integrated into buildings and how we're now generating electricity. And when we look at the, the topics of sustainability and resiliency and building construction, all of these types of things are the, the types of things that young millennials are really interested in and the types of things that, when we communicate it correctly, want help us draw those young people to a career in roofing. Great. You may have touched on this a bit, but what sort of uh, leadership lessons have you learned over the years? Oh, man. I, I, you know, <laughs> I, I guess I have to try, to try to think as far as leadership goes. But I, I would say that I just believe that leadership is really a function of how you treat people. People are always more willing to follow somebody when they when they admire and respect the leader that they're following. And so on my desk and taped to my computer screen are two words, kindness and humility. Hmm. And when you're a leader, sometimes people don't relate that to being humble and they see you kind of driving an agenda and it's easy for, for people to think that, well, this, this person needs a little bit more humility. But when I talk about humility, I'm talking about the deeply personal connections and intersections when when two or three people meet in a small group and how you treat them and and how you relate to them, how you respect them, and how you're willing to let them rise above maybe the place that they're currently at today. And when you think in terms of just being kind to people and living and acting your life out in those personal relationships in a way that's humble, where you've got an opportunity to continue to learn from others. Those are the, the those are the values that I think undergird any great leader. And so, I've actually provided a laminated card for virtually every one of my employees, hmm. trying to keep them focused on those two values because I think they're the linchpin of human relationship. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, and then, and wouldn't you agree? I mean, don't don't you think it's it's better when people treat you with kindness than that? Absolutely. You know, you're more drawn to those. Yeah, you're more drawn to those type of people. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. So what does the future of the uh, NRCA uh, look like in, in your eyes? 
You know, I think that over the course of the next decade, that we're going to see an entire evolution driven by NRCA's effort to create professional certifications for roofing workers. You know, today, if someone is thinking about going into construction, a young person is maybe 16 or 17, 18 years old, and they start to look at construction generally as a career opportunity, they can learn very quickly that if they go and become an electrician, they can become a master electrician. They can become a master plumber. They can become a master carpenter. And there's a very clearly defined process whereby their career can be developed inside that trade. And that's never existed in the roofing industry. And so NRCA is creating that very clearly defined career path. And we're building professional certifications that if roofing workers are ambitious and they want to professionalize their career, climb the ladder of better pay and more responsibility, possibly become a foreman or maybe even own their own roofing company, we're building that for them right now. And they can stack different professional certifications by discipline on top of each other. So for example, let's say they install asphalt shingles on people's homes. We can certify them that they're a professional installer if they're going to undergo both a knowledge and skills-based exam. And if they wanted to also learn this in other disciplines like low-slope roofing with TPO or EPDM, they can stack certifications on each of these disciplines and ultimately reach master status. And this is the long-term play for the industry to first professionalize it, to decommoditize it, and to make it more appealing to young workers. And that is the big evolution that's occurring in RCA right now. So what would you say, like you've explained, you've had a a very long career and you've done many different things. What do you think was kind of the turning point, like with your career and your life, where you sort of were kind of thinking one way and you were sort of transformed? Where would you sort of pinpoint that? Yeah, that's a difficult that's a really good question, and I, I would probably have to think a little bit about it, me a little bit more about it. But I mean, I think, I think I'm like a lot of people that there were probably more than one of those, that there wasn't a single, I'm going this way and now I'm turning this way. Sure. But I will tell you that probably the first one was when I got married. And I got married quite young. I got married when I was 19, and mm-hmm. my first son was born when I was 21, and my, my second son was born when I was 23. So I was a really young father, a young, young husband. And quite frankly, the, the relationship that's built between my wife and I was a real team effort as we began to build and strengthen that first and build and strengthen our family first. And I think that that was the first significant turning point in my life. And I've got great respect for my wife, Dina, and for what she's taught me along the way. Uh, just a little bit about me. And she's... Uh, that she helps me become more self-aware of how I come across to people when I can be a little bit too coarse. She's willing to help gently pull me into a place of correction there. And then along, along the way, I think I've probably learned the most when I've made mistakes rather than when I've made successes. When things didn't go well, those hard lessons of life that, that you learn along the way that kind of knock you down a little bit, when you learn to get back up and continue to fight and claw and grow, it's moments like that. But there, there was no single big turning point until I decided to change a career and run for Congress. I think that was mm. probably that second big turning point. And then the third big turning point was when I decided to leave Congress and, and come back to this trade that I care so much about. But I think in general, unlike most people, 
that there's learning that happens every single day. It's organic and change happens if you're, if you're willing to be open to it. I've had great leaders around me all my life. For the most part, I don't, I don't view myself as being all that consequential, but I, I had a knack of being around people that actually were. And I, I think that that probably helped me better than anything. Mm, sounds great. Now you're a busy guy. What are your sort of top three habits or routines for success? Yeah, first of all, I'm an avid reader. Some probably something that not many people know about me. Because I'm an early riser, I, I get up at between four thirty and five every day. Oh wow! I'll typically read books from four thirty to six thirty or five to seven, somewhere around there, to start my day. And I've done that ever since I graduated from high school. I've read thousands of books in my lifetime, and I read up to two to three books a week. And there's a lot of different ways people can learn and go to college and get around mentors and things like that. I think I've done the bulk of my learning by reading what others have written. And so I would say that's number one. You know, I think that that's a real key success to life. Secondly, I have a tendency if I have a, a difficult day ahead of me, it's been a life pattern of mine to deal with the most difficult things first in my mm-hmm. day. And so I'll take a look at my day and in the aggregate and say, what are the hardest things I have to do today? And when I'm awake and early in the morning and refreshed, I will tackle those most difficult things first thing off. And then I know as I go throughout my day, the day gets easier. Mm. And what I've discovered then is when I get home, it's a much less stressful environment because I didn't leave the toughest things to do to the last minute. I try to do those first. And I think that, that that's probably the, the second thing. And then, then the third thing is always keeping your value system in front of you. What really matters in life are the relationships that we have with people. And so make sure you guard and protect those because at the end of the day, those are the only things that have any type of lasting value. When I'm gone, the people that are left here after me will either value what they've gotten and learn from my example or they will resent it. And I would rather have them value it. Very nice. So you you told me that one of those was to read a lot. You read thousands of books. What are your yeah. What are your favorite books? Which ones stand out? <laughs> uh, you know, I think I think probably because it's a lot of them. Uh, I think there's probably one book that I I thought was maybe even I don't know. It was, it was so profound that I, I remember a lot about it. It was written by an author by the name of Frederick Beekner, and Frederick Beekner was a was a minister from Vermont who uh, wrote a book, and the title of it is Telling the Truth, and yeah, it was just such a powerful book that, and the, and the concept that that telling the truth really matters, and what underlies and undergirds that about just not just how we live our lives, but our faith system, I think was probably one of the most influential books in my life. And but I don't, I don't limit my reading to just that. I I read books on history. I read autobiographies and biographies. I, Sometimes I read just for sheer entertainment of it all because I, I enjoy to read. And so I'll read fiction books as well. And I just think I've got a lot of great authors that I've had a chance over the course of my life to read and, and enjoy. The interesting thing is I'm not a good writer and I don't enjoy writing. Mm. And so it's kind of weird that, that I read as much as I do because I'm, I'm, I'm not a particularly good, good writer and I've never been a particularly good writer. So, but I've read a lot of books. I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books. Yeah. <laughs> Thousands of books, actually. Another another book that I think that really kind of caused me to, to rethink about 
who I was and how I lived my life was a book by Ryan Holiday called Ego is the Enemy. Mm -hmm. And just a real take a real heartfelt look at, at yourself and the topic of arrogance, narcissism, humility, things that I don't think I'm particularly good at, that I need to have a constant reminder about that and how I live my life. Wow. That's great. So uh, do you have any other hobbies? Hobbies? Uh, man, lately, it doesn't seem like I have any time for hobbies. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. But, 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 but I, I enjoy boating. I enjoy uh, uh, virtually anything that gets me around my grandkids. Yeah. You know, I've got five grandsons, and uh, I can't think of hardly anything that gives me as much joy as being around them and spending time with them as they're growing up. And they range in age from 16 to a couple of months. And so it's, uh, I think things that, that evolve around my family, when I can uh, slow down my work life and just be with them, that's probably the most thing, it's the thing I enjoy more than anything. That makes a lot of sense. Now, is there anything that I should have asked, but didn't? Oh man, oh man, this was a good interview. No, you'll have to figure out how to make this make sense. And, <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, but no, I think it was a good interview. Thank you. Um, I, I'm sure the listeners will get a ton out of it. Thank you, Reed. Well, you're welcome. It's good to be with you. I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify today. also want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone, anyone that would benefit from this episode, please pass it along. And finally, make sure you subscribe to hear upcoming episodes. Talk to you soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.